get your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, and uh, invited Ron to come and to read scripture for us today. Acts chapter 20, I'll invite you to stand as we read that passage of scripture together, verses 25 through 31. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Thank you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for the opportunity of gathering this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the family that we've experienced, and Lord, the way that you have um, and are bringing life into Gateway Bible Church. Lord, we thank you for those that are present with us as visitors today, and we just ask that now as we, as we open up your word, as we continue our time thinking about church leadership, and Lord, your, your desire for that, um, Lord, would you help us uh, to have hearts of understanding, uh, Lord, that we would we would be teachable, Lord, that you would use me as your mouthpiece, and Lord, that, that what I say, Lord, would, uh, would be clear and helpful for the furtherance, Lord, of the building of, up of your body here in, in Castro Valley, Lord. So would you now have your way with us, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Uh, for, for those of you who may be visiting with us, we are um, purposely shifting gears in our typical um, working through a book of the Bible uh, progress. We've gone through the Gospel of John, we've gone through the book of Haggai, we've gone through Jonah, that was early on, and uh, we've taken some time at different times to, to focus on particular topics. Well, we are in the, in the place right now where we've had prospective elders uh, for almost two years, and we're at the place where we need to be moving into formalizing that eldership, and so that, that meant that we needed to have a time as a church to think about church leadership, what does it look like? And um, we, we started out with just kind of overviewing the church and seeing how beautiful it was. Last week, we took time to look at Psalm 23, just the great passage that talks about God being our shepherd and how this, this theme of shepherd uh, moves on into Christ and then from Christ into the leaders of those churches. Today, um, we are uh, purposefully, uh, because we want to lay a foundation of understanding and comprehension of where we are here in 2013, we're going to take some time to work through a process of, of kind of gleaning over history to understand what the church has look, looked like in the past. And, and hopefully that'll, that'll kind of, some light bulbs will go off, because I think a lot of people just have a, a, a really a misunderstanding of what has taken place in the church through time. And we're not going to cover all the details, but enough that's going to help us move to the place where we can see what we're trying to do here at Gateway is rooted in this, this, this waft of history and uh, is, uh, is something that, that God is at work doing. Um, 
A number of years ago, a man was walking on uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. Anyone ever been to the Golden Gate Bridge before? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay, we've been there, right? Uh, it's right, right here, but one of the things that happens at the Golden Gate Bridge every once in a while is people jump off, and he's walking along, and he sees this, this woman about to jump off, and so he ran up to her trying to dissuade her from committing suicide, and he told her simply that God loved her, and a tear came to her eye, and he then asked her, are you a Christian, a Jew, a Hindu, or what? And she said, I'm a Christian. And he said, me too, small world, um, Protestant or Catholic? And she said, Protestant, is that not? Me too, that's good. Uh, what denomination? Baptist. It's like, wow, really? Well, I'm Baptist also. Um, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Um, and uh, she said, well, Northern Baptist. And he said, ah, wow, we have a lot in common here. Um, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? Oh, she says, Northern consider, uh, Conservative Baptist. He said, wow, that's amazing. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reform Baptist? And she said, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. Remarkable, he said. Is that Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern region? And she told him, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region. A miracle, he said. Now, is that Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And she said, oh, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And at that, his complexion completely changed. And he said, die heretic, as he pushed her off the bridge. Hopefully you wouldn't do that if you were in that situation. But the story kind of conjures up for us some of the problems that take place in this whole concept and context of understanding the church and the differences between denominations and the makeup and the structure of the church. And so I think there are some things that we can relate to here. Um, and, you know, we, we want to answer some questions today. Just briefly, um, just this whole idea of denominations. Some people ask, why are there so many denominations? I'm just going to give you a real, real quick answer here. There's a lot more to it than this, but um, the word denomination, uh, as it relates to the church, just describes different kinds of churches or different streams of organizations of churches. Um, and denominations have multiplied, I think, from a, a variety of, uh, for a variety of reasons. Let me give you three that I think are just helpful just to kind of earmark. Number one, um, doctrinal drift. Um, a lot of times, new denominations are born out of denominations where the doctrine, where that denomination has wandered away from its original doctrinal position. And that's not unusual. In fact, many of the older mainline denominations have drifted in their theology, have drifted in their doctrine. One example of that is, um, and I, I heard this firsthand from a, a guy from, um, from, um, Cuba. And what happened was, if you remember, Cuba kind of became this, this closed country, and um, he was a Presbyterian, and he was, they established this church in Cuba under the denomination, 
but they were not allowed to communicate back to that denomination. Over the course of about 30, 35 years, they were able to communicate back. And the church in America wanted nothing to do with the church in Cuba. That was the same name, same organization, because the church in Cuba, under the kind of communistic presence in Cuba, maintained its purity, maintained its theology and its doctrine, but the church in America had wandered. Okay? So sometimes denominations start because there are, there's a drift in doctrine. Right? Another reason why denominations uh, start is, is there can be a, a difference in the philosophy of ministry. You say, is that a doctrinal issue? Yes, it is, but it's also an issue of practice. You can agree on, let's say, the Apostles' Creed, but how you go about ministry may not reflect actually believing in the Word of God at all. It can reflect on, you know, you, you have these wonderful church growth principles. And so there can be a, a parting of ways, even within a denomination, based on what it is you're going to do and how you're going to do it. Another way that often is the case, though, and this is a sad one, is personalities. Sometimes personalities can, can separate different denominations. One denomination, won't give you the name of it, but um, it was a, a denomination that was led by two brothers, and, and you know, two brothers had a had a falling out, and so they basically just, one said, well, I'm gonna go <laughs> take this part of the denomination, and now there's two denominations that are very, very similar in name, okay? I, I have heard recently that denomination has actually kind of, they've kind of come back together again. The point is, denominations can happen, or, or can, can multiply uh, for some good reasons, and also for some not so good reasons. Uh, we must always be pursuing the unity of the body, right? The question is, what does that unity mean? That we all just love one another? No. The doctrinal truth, what is the gospel, is the most important question that we ask. Who is God? What is he like? All right? Those are critically important. And when those, are, when those are, are distorted, then the ability to work together and to be united is distorted. Okay? So those are just some things about denominations. I, you know, it's one of those questions that often comes up. Now, Church leadership in my life has, has been varied. In the context where I have served as a, as a pastor or an associate or a youth pastor, um, I have been in some different kind of church structural, church government context. Let me just kind of run through them a little bit with you. First of all, um, I've been under a benevolent dictator, okay? Um, and uh, this is where the pastor is the only and final say. There may be deacons present, but they are just purely yes men. The pastor is the king, rules the roost, and may be a nice guy. People may love him, but he is the one who has the final say. And if the pastor says you shouldn't marry that person, then you shouldn't marry that person. That kind of a thing, right? Very, very strong, benevolent dictator leadership. Then um, there's the, the, what, call, what I call the board-run church, where the pastor is serving under a board, um, which... In that case, the board was fragmented as a representative of the people. So when they got together for board meetings, it wasn't so much to do the work of the ministry. It was more to represent people's complaints to the board and to accomplish you know, solving those in the context of a board meeting. Um, and it, th th that context, the, the church was committed to death. It was just committee, 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 committee. And these committees kind of fed up to the board. But um, the, the, there was this relationship where the board really kind of um, looked at the pastor as uh, 
he wasn't necessarily one of them. It was just kind of a really strange setup, but a very common setup. Um, then I've been in the context where it was a young church, and um, it was a church that had a deacon board. And basically, if you were a guy, um, you were on the deacon board. I mean, it was, it was, it was one of those things where th- the motive was good. We want people involved, and we love one another. And so if you're a, a brother who loves the Lord, just come and be a part of this. And in that particular context, we had to kind of teach on what biblical eldership was, and finally there was a transition where we ended up with three elders, one of them being me and two other guys. Um, But that was kind of a a strange kind of scenario, Um, but it was a means by which we were able to move ahead. The last one is what I would call uh, church leaders that call themselves a board or a deacon board, but function as a board of directors who hire pastors to run the church, do youth ministry, run programs, preach, counsel, etc. So there's a board that hires people to do ministry. And if you don't like what they're doing, then you get hire someone else in. Um, so there's, there's not a board that's actually pastoring and shepherding. They're, they're a board of directors that are doing it. And I've been under those, those kind of contexts before. And so what my point here is this. Even in the churches where I have been, where I have served, there has been a difference of structure in the church. And probably everyone in here, if you've grown up in the church or if you're new to the church, you've probably been in churches where there has been some different kind of structure, okay? So why consider the structure of the church? I mean, why couldn't we be talking more, you know, about more important things, Pastor Ott? Hear this. If we get the structure wrong, the the health and the well-being of the church is going to suffer. If we get the structure wrong, the purity of the, of the, the gospel and the doctrine that the Word of God reveals is going to suffer, Okay? And so it's important for us to say, this is important to God. He has given us instructions. He's given us guidance. So let's listen to what he has to say, and let's do our best to establish a church that, that follows that, that flow and that, that kind of um, those elements in, in this particular context. Let me give you three reasons why uh, to consider the structure of the church. First of all, because there are many notions about how the church should be governed. Uh, people, you know, this, we're a young church, we're two years old, and yet different people are walking into the church and a part of this church that have come from churches that have different structure. And they might like certain things about those various structures. So we need to, we need to kind of bring it all together and harness it, but be able to say and, and to recognize there's a lot of diversity, there's a lot of confusion, and we need clarity. And where do we want to go to get that clarity? We want to go to the Word. We want, we want to mine the Word. Secondly, um, because history is full of abuses, as far as church leadership is concerned, right? Now, some of, some of you older in generation would recognize the name Jim Jones, right? Was there a structure to that organization? Yeah, I'm in charge, you listen to me, even if that means what you drink, right? How about David Koresh? Don't remember that one? Branch Davidian. Okay, now I'm, I'm giving you what, what I would consider to be cults. My point, though, is that there is structure in those organizations that affected people. And there is always a, a room for abuse when it comes to church leadership. Okay? The third thing is this, because there is a prevailing trivial attitude toward church polity and church governance. As if it's really not that important, it really doesn't matter, there are far more important things than how a church should, should be run. And friends, I, I understand where some of that is coming from because of all the, the, the variety that may be out there in different churches, but 
we don't kind of just throw it out and say, well, it doesn't really matter anymore because God in his word tells us that it does matter. But church leadership has some purpose. There are some specific things that church leaders should be doing. There are some uh, qualifications that they should have. There are some relationships that the congregation should have with that leadership. And so this is kind of the, the foundation of why we're going to do what we're going to do today. And we're going to kind of take a, a, a brief history uh, of, of the structure of the church through the years. And this is going to be somewhat chronological, okay? There's basically three different kinds of church government that have taken place through the years. Number one would be Episcopalian. Secondly would be Presbyterian. Um, and the third one would be Congregational, okay? Now, uh, we're going to walk through these briefly. I'll explain them, and maybe some things will pop off in your head and say, ah, I recognize that. First of all, let's think about the Episcopalian form of government. You see this chart up there? It's in your handout. And what you see here is something that is very, very top-down. Those who hold and practice Episcopalian form of church government do not claim that the form or this form of government is something that is taught in the Word of God. Um, instead, they stress that it's a natural outgrowth or evolution and development of the church since its beginning that there was a need to develop a structure like this as the church grew and developed through history, okay? And so for years, this form was the prevailing form of church organization. Um, this is one of the reasons why uh, they believe in what's called apostolic succession, that from Peter, there has been this direct line through, um, through the years so that the present leader of whatever that church denomination is, is directly traced back to, at least in their thinking, um, Peter, who was the rock that the church was built on, which is, in my opinion, a wrong understanding of, of what that purpose in that passage is talking about, but that's where they get that from, okay? So, um, well, that's apostolic succession. Not all of them actually believe that, but uh, um, for the most part, many of them do, all right? It's very hierarchical, all right? So, as you see there, there are archbishops. There's one archbishop, all right? And that archbishop then governs many bishops who then govern um, these, these other uh, areas where there are churches, and each church then has a rector, or it's also called a vicar, okay? Episcopalian form of government here, okay? All the archbishops, bishops, and rectors, also known as vicars, are ordained priests. Now, um, what are some denominations that use this structure of church government? I'll put them up there for you. Um, obviously, Episcopalians, right? I mean, that's where it comes from. But the Anglican Church is actually the, the British form of Episcopalianism, okay? So when you think of Anglican and you think of Episcopalian here in the States, they're actually the same stream, so to speak, of church denomination. Um, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, the Roman Catholic Church, all right? These are the, the structures, maybe different names, different titles given, but there is this hierarchical structure. Uh, Methodists, uh, by and large, will use this. Some Lutherans will also, um, but they do, both Methodists and, and the Lutherans do not believe in apostolic succession. They use that former church government, right? Um, many years ago, um, about 10, well, 1000 A.D., um, excuse me, 1054, there was this, this great split. I might say the Catholic Church. We say the Catholic Church, it was the church, split into two. In the West, you had the Roman Catholic Church. In the East, you had the 
Orthodox Church, and from the Orthodox Church you had then like the Russian Orthodox, right? Um, and what happened there was you had this, this kind of different, different streams using the same similar structure. So, for example, in the Catholic Church you have the Pope, you have cardinals, you have bishops, you have priests, and then you have the congregation. Okay. Now, are you guys familiar with this? Have you seen this? Have you heard these words before? And kind of, right, so you kind of get this idea. There's a lot of these big old denominations that use this kind of structure. And it's helpful to understand at least where it comes from. All right? um, by the way, um, Russian Orthodox Church, interestingly enough, um, really was not affected directly by the Reformation because they were in the East. The Reformation was much more of a, a Western church kind of dynamic, just something to kind of put in the back of your head as you're thinking about the flow of the gospel and the flow and development of the church through the years. Then there's Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism. Um, this form of government began with the Reformation. All right? So under the Episcopalian government, um, the bishop or one man was emphasized, the archbishop or the pope. Under the Presbyterian government, the emphasis moves from the one to the many. Okay? From one person, you might want to say, to many people serving together in leadership. So you have a congregation, and I'm thinking not top-down, I'm thinking kind of more from bottom-up here, but you have a congregation, and that congregation has elders, and then those elders, uh, some of those elders form what's called a presbytery, which is kind of a regional um, um, kind of governance of that area. And then there's the General Assembly, which often is a nation or it's a large region. So you have up here this picture, this General Assembly. That could be, um, you know, it could be a country that's divided up into different parts, and there's various presbyteries. The session is another word for a church, okay? It's the idea. So each church has this, has this session. The session is made up of elders, okay? Now, this is typically um, obviously found in the Presbyterian church, and uh, many of the Reformed churches... Um, and there, there's some reason for, I will say, the stream of Presbyterian and the stream of Reformed, because under John Calvin, who was in Geneva, he influenced the church in the Reformation in Switzerland, in Germany, in France, in Holland. And so most of those churches in that region are called Reformed. Okay? Then you have John Knox, who took from his time in Geneva and was influenced by that, went back to Scotland and they established, or he established there, the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, which spread to England, Wales, and Ireland. Okay? And so that's where Presbyterianism typically is much more of a British Isles context that then flew or kind of gravitated over to the United States as things moved over um, in, you know, along through history. Okay? So again, top, it, there, there's a top-down dynamic to this, not as much in the Presbyterian um, as it is in the Episcopalian, but there is this top-down approach um, to the local church. Now, in other words, let me give you some practical thoughts here about this. In, in many contexts, the local body of believers submits to the decisions of key, the key leader, that would be the pope or archbishop or bishop, depending on uh, what's happening in that particular region, or the key bodies of leaders, which in this case would be the elders, the presbytery, or the general assembly. Right, there is, they, they can make decisions for those churches that are under them. Okay? So, for example, in many contexts, a congregation has little say, if any, about who their pastor might be. I don't know who our pastor is going to be. You know, the, you know, the presbytery is going to determine that, and they're going to send us someone that they want us to have. Okay? Now, things are not quite as, 
quite that way in all of the Presbyterian church in America, but there is certainly that presence there and there's been some adjustment. But many times congregation does not know who, who that pastor's gonna be, okay? Um, secondly, th- there can often be some shuffling around of, well, we want this pastor over here, this pastor over here. So, I mean, a pastor might be ministering in a context for, for four years and all of a sudden those above him say, you know, we want you to move from here and go somewhere else. Okay. So it's not, it's not fed by the congregation, it's fed by, from the top down, and they kind of move people around, okay? All right, you guys familiar with that? You've seen that before? You've been a part of that, okay? Now, so you have this, these two streams, the Episcopalian, which is the earlier one, the Presbyterian, and then we move into what's called the Congregational. And this is really the emphasis here is that it's not so much that the congregation is making all the decisions, but, but the emphasis here is that things are at this local congregational level, okay? So there's not a top-down kind of dynamic going on here. The picture here is of Christ and his church. Christ is the head. The the members then are part of that body, and um, every member of that church then is a priest. And we read that as we began our services today, uh, 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We, you know, these people would believe in the priesthood of the believer, not necessarily the priest of the pastors, per se, or those that are going up the line, okay? There is an emphasis on the local congregation, then, as independent, as autonomous, and not subject to Episcopalian or Presbyterian control. So they're independent, they're autonomous, and they're not subject, then, to this, this top-down kind of approach. They're independent, meaning they are going to determine how they're going to function, how they're going to be governed, and they're autonomous. They're not going to be influenced by other organizations outside of them, okay? That's the idea. Um, So there's an emphasis then also that no one person is uh, is an absolute authority. So you you can't have a pope that he's the one who's saying everything you need to have. Even, Even... um, should be that there shouldn't be a pastor. That benevolent dictator should actually not be part of that. There is that sense that that should be the case, or that limitation should be there. Why? Because we are, we're all one in Christ. There is this unity, but there are in Scripture limitations as to the role and function of those who are in leadership. I joke with you sometimes, you know, the, in my office I have a bat phone to God, right? I kind of joke with people about that. Yeah, let me go to my office, you know, I'll get on my phone and I'll talk to God. I mean, I that's obviously not reality, okay? If you've ever been to my office, you will not find a bat phone at all. And I wouldn't know why it's a bat phone anyway. It's just the whole idea is just, you know, that, that thing of the phone to the commissioner in Batman, right? No, all of those in leadership are representing Christ as overseers, as shepherds, and we'll get to that. But in congregational government, the, the church and this local body is the place where decisions are made where authority is exercised, okay? So Christ is the head of the church. All believers are priests before God, but there's also a need then for leadership within that congregation. What does that look like? Oh, by the way, uh, what are the denominations that follow this? Well, the congregational, the Baptist in its many forms, Mennonite, evangelical, free, many of them, if not most of them, independent churches. We would consider ourselves an independent church, Bible church, um, but we, we don't have particular denomination or organization that is telling us what we should or shouldn't do. We have big brothers, and I say that, North Creek Church up in Walnut Creek has been a really great, 
big brother to us and continues to be a great big brother. And if there were ever a consideration about what was going on in our leadership or even with me as a teaching pastor, um, North Creek would, would be the, the big brother that our church family would turn to for help and for guidance. Um, we really appreciate that relationship, but you can see all these different organizations up there are congregational. Now, as you notice, there's a whole bunch of little blanks in your hand out there, right? There's different kinds then of structure within the congregational system, all right? So let's look first of all at what, what, what I'm calling pure democracy. In fact, these titles, these ideas are not my own. They come from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Very, very helpful. You want to read up more on it, that's fine. But pure democracy is, is where the American political system imposes a cultural truism on the church, right? Um, truth, justice, and the American way, right? Should happen in the church, too. You know, I get to have my vote. It's the American way. Well, um, okay, except pure democracy is not found in Scripture. It's just, it's just not there. You're not going to see it. You're imposing uh, American political system into the government of the church. And so in this form of governance, everything must come to the congregational meeting. This results in endless arguing over minor decisions. And as the church grows, just think about it, as the church grows, that means there's more decisions to make, right? That means more meetings, more people to, to gather together to vote on things, all right? And so when decisions are opened for discussion, Get this, there will always be differences of opinion. There will always be people who, who are going to have different viewpoints, different ideas, different strategies, and different loyalties that will be brought to the table. Now, speaking of bringing to the table, imagine if we applied this in the arena of donuts, okay? We're going to gather together as a church. We're going to say, all right, we're going to have a meeting to talk about what kind of donuts we're going to have as we gather here on a Sunday morning. Let me ask you a question. Is that a trivial topic? No, they're donuts, right? You understand how important these things are, right? And there are some who would say, just get the glazed donuts for whatever reason. And they could be a variety of different reasons, but just get the plain donuts. Then many would say, no, we need to get jelly and custard filled, right? See, already, already, already we're causing factions and division within the, the, the body here, okay? And then others would say, we shouldn't be having donuts at all. They're unhealthy, right? Now, before long, before long, the, the, the glazed people would find themselves. And before long, the, the custard-filled people, um, which I would be one of, okay, um, would rally together. And then, of course, the, the glum-faced donut haters would would all sit in the back of the room sulking, okay? Now, I, this is a trivial topic, but I, I'm trying to obviously have fun about something that could be so divisive and harmful in the church. When it comes down to it, does it really matter what kind of donuts we have? We could also practice church discipline today, tell you which one. But it's <laughs> no, it, you know, it, it might be important to you. Let's just say you love jelly-filled donuts, but you come to church and they're all glazed. I can't believe these people, they don't eat jelly-filled donuts. The next meeting, I'm going to stand up, and I'm going to propose that we have, 
And you see how silly this stuff gets. When we're, church meetings are not talking about what God is calling us to do as a church family. It becomes this minutia of detail of stuff that it really doesn't matter whether there's a church donut or not. Um, in fact, you know, some people might say we just shouldn't have anything. Okay? Some people say, well, yeah, that's right. You didn't even bring up bagels. Um, and then there's that we should never bring any food into the sanctuary. Um, this is a multi-purpose room, if anyone wants to know. Um, today, right now, this is the gathering where God's people are at. But you see, you see where this, this stuff can go. And, and, and friends, we've got to be careful. And that's why, that's why this pure democracy is just is really, really an unhealthy way to approach how we do church. Can you imagine what it would be like if we were doing that? All right? This practice has good motives to involve everyone in the church. We want to see people involved. Yeah. My, if anyone says, hey, how do I get people involved in my church? I say, go plant a church. There'll be plenty of chairs to pick up. Automatic involvement. Everyone here today can help out, can be involved. All right? That's just for the end of the service. All right? You want to help clean up? That's fine. All right? But this is not scriptural. It's not practical. It's extremely time-consuming to function that way. It causes great anxiety for all, and it opens everyone up to schism and factions and stuff like that. Okay? So um, pure democracy, not healthy. All right? Secondly, um, no government but the Holy Spirit. This is very common in church plants. And maybe church plants that are kind of more immediate church plants, maybe something that happened where, you know, people left a particular church and we're going to start a church right now and we don't want any church leadership because we had problems with the church leadership of the other church and we're just going to allow the Holy Spirit to guide and to lead us. Noble? Mm-hmm. Okay, understand? But typically what happens there, when there's a denial of church government, obviously there's an ignoring of Scripture and what happens is there may be an appearance of being spiritual, but it will result in subjective feelings ruling the day. And then secondly, it will result probably in strong personalities influencing things that are going on that are not necessarily people who are godly. And what oftentimes is couched as this is the Holy Spirit at work is not. It's what you want at work. Okay? And so there, there's an element of truth here. When church leadership gets together and they're going to say, we want the Holy Spirit to guide us and to direct us, there, there is some kind of this, this place where we're saying, we need to take time, we need to be sure. There's a place for the Holy Spirit's guidance, right? But not this kind of big lump, let's just kind of, you know, kind of take it one step at a time. It's really, really not a healthy scenario. Then there's what we're calling the corporate board. Um, the corporate board. Let's walk through this a little bit. The church board equals a corporate board. In other words... The corporate board functions like a board of directors for a corporation, which is then the church. It hires employees to run the church, similar to a business. The senior pastor is hired to be the executive director or CEO of the organization and or staff. And the thinking is, if it works for Walmart, then it should work for the church. And if you want, if you want to grow a church right Go to some kind of a ritzy department store and see what they do and then do it in your church. This is pure pragmatism, friends. This is not based on the Word of God. It's purely pragmatic. Um, I've shared this story with some of you, but I'll share it now because it's appropriate. Um, in the church that I, I was pastoring um, uh, recently, I, had, uh, I reluctantly went to a pastor's conference held by that particular denomination. And uh, when, I, when I got there, it was a two-day conference. Uh, just honest truth, pastor's conference, the Bible was not opened once. 
And the host pastor gets up to speak in one of his key sessions, and here is what he said. If you want to know how I grew my church, this is what I did, and this is what you should do. He says, I got all of my key leaders together, leaders of various ministries in the church. I gathered them together. We said, we're going to go to San Francisco for like three or four days. And they went to San Francisco, and they went to one of the prestigious hotels in San Francisco, and they observed what they did, how they were organized, how they treated people. He said, we did that for three days, and we came back, and we said, we're going to do the exact same thing in our church. And if you want to grow your church, I would encourage you to do the same. And guess what? That church has grown. So people are like, oh, wow, what was the name of the hotel? I want to do this. Friends, it's pure pragmatism. It is denying the very fact that God has revealed specific guidelines for how the church is to grow and how the church is to be governed. Now, certainly there are things that we learn from the business world. Obviously, we do accounting in our church because you give us money, right? There are business principles we have to apply, but this corporate board mentality has, has come into the church, and friends, it is doing damage to the to the church, moving it away from what it should be, all right? Then there's the single pastor um, or single elder model. This is a very common form of church government. It's found in many Baptist churches, uh, Calvary Chapel churches, Evangelical Free Churches, etc. It teaches that in each church there is but one elder, and that is the pastor, he is often the final authority and will likely surround himself with a group of men, in some cir circumstances it's men and women, who are deacons or deaconesses. Typically those deacon groups fall into three categories. There are those who are yes men or yes women, that are just there kind of in name only, whatever the pastor wants, that's what they'll do. Then there's the, the, the ones that, like I shared with you before, they're ministry representatives, each of one kind of is lobbying for a particular ministry in their church. And then there's another one, a group that would be there, they're kind of representing certain factions within the church. Now those factions are not formal factions, but they're factions nonetheless. There's a certain group of people that have certain values and passions, and so I am on this board, and I'm representing them, and that's, it just kind of gets in there, and you're no longer talking about how can we move ahead in honoring God with this church. You're talking about how can I please these various factions, okay? Now, the way that the system works is varied, but the bottom line is that the pastor has full and ultimate authority in, these particular, in this particular model, okay? Um, it's one, there's one denomination um, where the pastors of the church um, are advised that when a particular man accepts the position of deacon in that church, that you should have that man right away write a letter of resignation, put it in an envelope and hand it to the pastor. The pastor then has that letter of resignation in his file that he can exercise at his will any time. What does that tell you? Who's really in control? Okay. But that's the norm. That's what they're taught. That's what they're told to do. Now, clarification here. It's also worth noting that a church may be functioning as a corporate board, but they call themselves deacons or a deacon board. It's also possible that a church might even use the correct language of Scripture and have a board of elders, but they can also be a corporate board. In other words, I want you to understand this, okay? You can call the group of leaders what you want, deacons, elders, gatekeepers like we did at the beginning, 
but it's how they function that is of greater importance. Okay? Now, what we want to do as best we can at, at Gateway here is we want to say we want to come as close as possible to what God has revealed in his word, and we want to use the terminology as close as possible to what God has revealed in his word. We want to reflect that as much as we can, okay? And that is our goal, that is our desire here, okay? So we move then to this last one, which is, we'll call this the plurality of local elders, okay? So remember under the Presbyterian, there were elders, and those, some of those elders would move up to the, the presbytery and then to the general assembly. This is a local elders. The local church has leaders that are called elders, all right? And we're going we're gonna to take some time to to work through what this looks like, right? They're a team of elders who share in the responsibility of oversight, shepherding, and caring for the members of that church. These men are not representatives of any constituency of, or particular area of ministry. They serve as shepherds, as pastors of God's flock. Hugely different than a board of directors, hugely different um, than simply yes men who are supporting a pastor. They are themselves taking on responsibilities of pastor in the context of the local church, okay? So let's think now about the principle of the plurality of elders. And we're gonna look at Hebrews 13, verse 17 to begin with here. And here's what I want to establish. Number one, I want you to notice as we go through these next 10 minutes or so, just how this idea of elders is not singular, it's plural, okay? And just notice in this passage here, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning that would be of no advantage to you. Now there's a lot being said in that passage. We're going to get back to that when we're going to look at the specific responsibilities of the congregation to those in elders in leadership. But I want you to at least notice here there's leaders plural uh, they are going to keep watch over your souls, okay? Them. Um, there's a plurality going on here. These plural leaders then are called, there's three titles that I've, I've mentioned here, but I want to I root them in Scripture. They're called elders, they're called shepherds, and they're called overseers. And we'll turn now to Acts chapter 20, which was the passage that we read um, at the beginning of our time here. Okay, so now we're kind of moving from church history actually into the Word of God, and we're trying to now pull out the importance of what does this plurality of elders look like, and just to establish that that is true, okay? So Acts chapter 20, turn if you would please to Acts chapter 20. I want you to see it. I want you to connect the dots. I want you to believe what God's Word teaches, that it is true, and understand that this is why we need to move in this direction as a church family, okay? Acts chapter 20, I want to begin at verse 17. Paul is speaking here to the elders, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. He then talks to the elders about his own calling and ministry and then leaves them with these words. Verse 28, now, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, I just want to connect the dots here that there are three words that are used then in this greater passage. He's addressing elders, first of all, verse 17. Then in Acts chapter 20, 28, he identifies them as overseers who are to care 
and idea there is to shepherd the flock, okay? So elders, overseers, shepherds. Now, fill in the blanks here. There are um, shepherds, which is the Greek word poimen, which is the word care. There's the bishops or overseer, which is the Greek word episkopos. Ah, well, we've heard that somewhere before, right? So the idea of episkopos or um, the uh, episcopalian comes from this word. Then we have this elder, which is presbyteros, from which we get the Presbyterian or presbytery, okay? But all these words then, these titles, are used in Scripture kind of interchangeably. They're talking about the same office. They're talking about the same function, the same person, the same group, these elders, these, these uh, overseers, these bishops, all right, these shepherds. So these are all referring to the same office in the New Testament, okay? Now, just to root that a little bit more, just hang with me as we go through Acts, Acts and then a few other passages as we move kind of eastward in your Bible. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Some key references here um, to elders in the New Testament. Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so here you have elders, plural, in every church, singular. Elders, plural, in every church, singular. Acts chapter 20, verse 17, we read that already. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So these are elders, plural, of the church, singular. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. It says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Again, these are elders, plural, elders, plural. And there's Titus 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul says to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Again, appoint elders, plural, in every city, singular. James 5.14. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now, I just want to think about this. If elders were referring to all those in a region, and you are sick, and you're calling for the elders of the church to come, you better get like a lot of rooms at the Holiday Inn, right? These are, this is talking here about local body elders, right? So this is, James 5.14 is really helpful to give clarity there in a practical way. 1 Peter 5.1, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witnesses of the suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Elders, plural, shepherd the flock, singular. Elders, shepherd the flock, singular. Now, I realize, guys, that this is, this is somewhat technical, but it's really important. It's really important to see that, that elders are presented to us in the context of the church in a plurality, not just one man but a plurality, a group of men who are caring for, who are overseeing that flock. So, I bring it now to some concluding thoughts. And these are not like quick, pithy concluding thoughts. These are actually further thoughts that I think are really helpful for us to consider now as we, as we move on thinking about these, this plurality of elders. First of all, 
Uh, it's the principle of a council of equals. The principle of a council of equals. This is not a new concept. This, in fact, is, is rooted in the Old Testament. The Old Testament leadership system had elders who worked together then as a council of equals to do what God was calling them to do. So it's also rooted in Jesus' relationship with um, the founding of the apostles and then of the twelve. There was this plurality. Here's the twelve. Here are the apostles. There's a plurality. They're working together as a team. They're a council of equals. And so the elder structure of governance in a collective leadership in, or is a collective leadership in which the church elder shares equally the position, the authority, the responsibility of the office that they are serving in. So a, a biblical eldership then is made up of a number of men serving together on, uh, you know, we call it a, a board or a council or, uh, um, or a, a, a group here, and they seize their responsibility, the care of the flock, the shepherding of the flock, the oversight of the flock, and they together as a team in shared responsibility based on their giftedness are going to do that to the best of their ability for the glory of God. There's a shared responsibility going on here, okay? So there is this principle of a council of equals. Now, there are many benefits to this, uh, to this reality, okay? First of all, it maximizes the strengths of each member. Just maximizes the strengths of each member because when, when, when you're sharing, sharing responsibility and you're sharing in the oversight, then you are able to maximize or focus in on those places where you are strong, and some elders are going to be really strong in the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Other elders are going to be strong in maybe one-on-one -on -one, um, counseling or, or it could be, um, you know, theology or it could be a variety of things. But your, your strengths are really going to be given the possibility to, to thrive there. Secondly, um, it balances out the weaknesses of each member. We all have weaknesses, right? Anyone here have a weakness? If you're, if you're part of, you know, an eldership, you are kind of balancing that. There's probably someone else in that group that can kind of counteract and fill in that area where you are weak. It, it lightens the load um, of, of responsibility. There's a shared responsibility. It lightens that load. It provides for more effective caring of the flock because that load is lightened and it can be more targeted, um, and in, in particular, that, that the responsibility is divided among the, the, that particular leadership. And it also provides accountability for each, each elder. So there's kind of like this internal accountability that's going on within that group. So there's this, this principle then of a council of equals. They are all equal, called to the same responsibility, and working together as a team to see that responsibility carried out. Okay? Second thing I want you to, to notice here is this. Uh, the principle of first among equals. First among equals. So they're all equal, but there are some who um, might want to say find themselves in the position of being the leader of the first uh, of the plurality. Okay, let me give you some some examples of that. Um, think about the disciples. There are three disciples who are often brought up as being kind of like the the leaders of the disciples. Their names are Peter, James, and John. Listen to Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Now, why didn't he take the rest of them? 
because there's something in the relationship with Jesus and in their role and function with the rest of the disciples here that, that, uh, that Jesus identified, and so he focused in on them. Another passage would be Galatians 2.9, and when James and Cephas, that would be Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, uh, perceived the grace that was given to me, and the point here is there. These three are called here, identified as pillars. So within this body here of the disciples, you have Peter, James, and John. But you also have to ask yourself the question, is there, is there a leader among those leaders? And there is. And who is it? It's Peter. I mean, there's Jesus, obviously, but there's Peter among those disciples, right? Um, when the disciples are listed, who's first? Peter. He is the spokesman for the disciples. And if you remember, when we went through John, you know, Peter's like, he is the one that would speak up and represent and, and, and communicate what the other disciples were talking about. Jesus puts on him the responsibility to feed my sheep at the end of that encounter there in the Gospel of John with the other disciples sitting around the fire with him. And he is the key leader and prominent figure of the disciples and the apostles as the book of Acts unfolds. So you have this key leader but he's still equal. He's not given this kind of title of, well, I am Peter, I am the, you know, look at me, I get the special seat because I am the first among equals. No, there's a natural leadership, there's a natural place where he is taking that leadership and he is the first among equals. We see this also in the, the seven, even the deacons. Philip and Stephen kind of rise up to be the leader of the, that group. Paul and Barnabas went on a missionary trip. Who was the leader in that pairing relationship. Paul, okay? Then Paul takes Silas along, and who's the leader in that relationship? Paul again. In other words, there is always, there's this leader, although there's equals, okay? And this is, this is perfectly fine. It's perfectly legitimate. It's actually very, very healthy. It doesn't mean that elders who are first among their equals do all the thinking and decision-making for the group. They are equals, but they are leaders among the equals. Now, in our context, as the pastor teacher, I would be considered the, the first among equals among the elders that are there, okay? But that doesn't mean that, well, Rod said it, therefore it has to happen. I appreciate the, the respect that is given the position of pastor teacher, but I also recognize the fact that I'm not always the one that has all the answers. I don't have a bat phone to God. I wish I did at times, right? As a, as a group together, the elders function as a team, but there's a recognition about first among equals, all right? So that's that, that concept then of the first among equals. I didn't get this up here for you. The last thing is this, and this, <laughs> you won't find this in the Bible spelled out at all. Um, and about 50 years ago, you, you wouldn't have known what I was talking about. But I think there is a principle here that's really important that is fleshed out with Jesus's relationship with the disciples and then how that turns into how the leader of the elders then should relate to that eldership for the health and the care of the body of Christ. And I'm calling it this, Reaganomics in the church. Now, what was, what was the whole idea of Reaganomics? It's called trickle-down, right? Trickle-down. And the idea here is then that the, that eldership is not just a group of, group of guys that get together to make decisions. They're a group of men who are growing and learning in their responsibility to be pastors and shepherds and overseers of the flock. And so you pour yourself, as a pastor teacher, you pour yourself into the lives of those other elders so that they can then 
exercise their gifts effectively and faithfully, that will then have an effect on the rest of the body. You see that? So there's this, this working together, there's this growing together as an eldership that then trickles down into the body of Christ. Now, in our context, uh, you know, we have obviously Sunday morning church. We gather here. Um, you know, you see me at the beginning of the service. You see me when I preach. More often than that, unless there's a baby dedication, all right, uh, you don't see me. I want other people to be a part of what's going on here. I want other guys who are stepping in. And we have prospective elders that are helping with announcements. We have different people that are helping with prayer and reading scripture and that kind of stuff. There's this shared kind of responsibility, even on a Sunday morning. Um, yet at the same time, we have home groups. And our prospective elders have each been overseeing home groups. And some of them have actually had Bible studies on the, their own that have been part of our, uh, of, of our network of, of ministries that have been taking place. But they are in those places as shepherds, as pastors, as teachers, as overseers of the flock, although yet we haven't put them formally in that position of elder. Okay? So there's, there's a need to recognize that that is going on. Okay? Now, let's go back to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. And I want to draw our attention then as we, as we bring things to a close to what this passage is actually teaching specifically. And this speaks to the role and function of an elder, which kind of set us up for what we're going to do in the next few weeks, um, but also the, the role and function of the congregation as it relates to those elders. It says, pay careful attention to yourself. So he's speaking now to the elders, and he's going to call them overseers, and, and he's going to call them shepherds here. But he says, first of all, pay careful attention to yourselves. Now, friends, this is, this is really important. As the eldership goes, so goes the church. If the church leadership crumbles, if the church leadership loses its way as far as what it's called to, then the, the church will also be right behind it. And so it's really important that those elders are paying attention to themselves. They're, they're considering their own life, their own doctrine, how they're living, their walk with God, their families, their relationships with their wives, their relationship with other people, the qualifications that are listed both in Titus and Timothy, they're measuring themselves about that. They want to be careful because they are responsible for something that is beautiful, wonderful, and awesome, and that is God's church. So they pay careful attention to themselves and then also to the flock. So they have a dual responsibility for themselves also then to the flock. We want to be looking hard at ourselves, and we want to be looking hard at the flock to consider how can we care for them, how can we nurture them, how can we do what we can to, to bring edification into that particular body, and to do that as elders, as overseers, as shepherds. The question now is why, and this is such a beautiful passage of scripture here at the end. It says here, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. The church of what? Church of God, get this which he obtained with his own blood. Just think about that statement. God purchases the church with his own blood. Who's the his? It's Christ. And if this isn't a clear proclamation that Jesus Christ is God, that's what it's saying, right? His own blood. God saying, my own blood is what paid for this church. Purchased the price for 
this church. And so we step back and we recognize that anyone who serves in the capacity of elder is doing so as an under-shepherd because Jesus is that good shepherd, that chief shepherd. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who died to enable the church even to be in existence. And so those elders have an incredible responsibility to be faithful to what God says, to seek out what God says, to honor God with his truth, and to care for that flock in a way that would truly bring glory to his name. My friends, that's not an easy thing. But we want to do the best that we can at Gateway to implement those truths into our church. Now, we already have that in our, in our bylaws, in our structures, in our values. In our, I'm teaching you here uh, how we got to those places. All right? and how we're going to move on then the next couple of weeks to talk about what are the qualifications, what are the roles and functions of those elders, how to do you as a congregation, how does that interaction take place. This is critically important. This is for a healthy body of Christ. But ultimately, it's because Jesus Christ died so that we could even be here as a church. So we want to, we want to do what we can and do it best. We don't just want to say it doesn't matter. It does. It does, it does, it does. And there's so much at stake if we are willy-nilly with it. We've got to take it seriously because God takes it seriously. Lord, help us today as we just consider, Lord, even the history of the church and the history of church governance in the church, Lord, and how, how, how Lord, we, we can so easily allow man's wisdom, which at times is helpful and good, to eclipse, Lord, what you desire for the church to be. Lord, may we not be rebellious of the past, but Lord, may we learn from it. May we be guided, Lord, by your truth into a church structure, Lord, that would, that would honor you. And then, Lord, as a church structure that would honor you, Lord, that, that in doing that, Lord, the health and the well-being of that leadership, Lord, would be right, and the health and the well-being of that congregation, Lord, would be right, because we are seeking to do things in accordance to your word. And Lord, not simply putting men in positions of decision-making because they're good decision-makers, but putting men into those positions because they are godly, they honor you, and they are qualified to care for your flock. Lord, you deserve that and so much more. It's so much, so little that we can do to even consider that we would be worthy of it. Yet, Lord, you've commanded it, you've, you've pictured it for us, you've You've drawn it out, so Lord, help us now to take it and to, to continue, Lord, to chew on this and then, Lord, to, to push ahead to be the kind of church you're calling us to be. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your faithfulness to us, and we praise you today in your name. Amen.